Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 26th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Patrick Henningsen. Um, okay, we're going to get kicked off uh, with uh, General uh, Lieutenant General Marlow from Germany. Uh, so here we have uh, Nova News. Now, this is going back to uh, March. Uh, because uh, General Marlow, Andreas Marlow, is responsible for the uh, German program to, to train Ukrainian uh, forces. Um, so back in March, he was saying we'll train up to 9,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Now, a piece of video has come to light in the last day or two, um, which appears to be showing a, a quote from General Marlow. And uh, we've had the, uh, it's, it's in German, obviously, so we've had that translated. And this is what he apparently has said. So let's bring this on screen. Uh, he said, uh, German instructors who've worked with Ukrainians agree uh, that they're not interested in the training program. Uh, this is the, the training of Ukrainian recruits. Uh, they're far more interested in ways to intimidate the enemy, including ways that might qualify as war crimes. Uh, they praise the punitive operations uh, that SS troops carried out during World War II and glorify the swastika. So that is what he appears to have said. Uh, and uh, well, We've, uh, there are quite a number of websites that have covered this. Uh, here's one uh, in Berlin. Uh, and uh, well, this uh, actually goes even further because it continues by saying uh, that he is the heads up the multinational special training center in Germany uh, under whose supervision Ukrainian soldiers are trained. Uh, and it goes on to say for months, Marlow has been trying to launch a federal investigation into crimes committed by Ukraine's military. In addition, uh, the Ukrainians request, so in addition to the comments that, he, that we've just shown the translation of, it says in this article that the Ukrainians requested access to Bundeswehr documents on punitive actions, both from the present day and from World War II. And it goes on to say that according to these Ukrainians, uh, British representatives have already shared similar information with them, uh, and they expected the same from the Germans. Now, if there's any truth to this, Brian, this is quite an incredible uh, story. It's an incredible story. It's got to be finalised that 100% correct, but it does seem to be. Uh, but of course, what is coming back to light here is the fact that the extremist element within the Ukrainian military appears never to have gone away. It's been pushed to one side. Uh, the Western media has largely uh, spoken out that uh, Ukraine military has changed, but is that really the case? Um, because it's quite clear on the battlefield that the um, so I'm going to call them more extremist re regiments are the ones that have been brigades. Sorry, are the ones that have been pushed up into the uh, into the most difficult areas of fighting. So, is this the truth now coming to, to the surface about what is really going on inside Ukraine's military? Now, if we put that one back up on screen there, that graphic back up on screen, you can see that that screenshot has been taken from, via the Wayback Machine, uh, and the reason for that is simply that this particular a website and that URL is now unavailable. Uh, and uh, they're saying that it's unavailable uh, uh, as a result of a hack. Uh, now, there are quite a number of other uh, uh, news outlets in Germany that have covered this story. And it seems to be increasingly hard now to, to actually get uh, the coverage that they had because either the pages have been taken offline uh, by themselves or for some other reason. So uh, I'm not really sure what is going on there. Uh, but Patrick, what are your thoughts on this? Well, the 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 issue of the Nazi element 
in the Ukrainian uh, military forces has been covered up from the di- from day one, despite a plethora of reporting, even from Western media outlets, years and years before the current phase of this conflict has broken out. Even the BBC uh, has done, you know, reportage on the Nazi problem uh, in Ukraine. So it's like very well documented. But the fact that it be- it was one of the main objectives of Russia's special military operation to denazify Ukraine because of that. This is one of the reasons why it's just, there's a blanket blackout on this. So there's, there's tons and tons of articles from British media, from the U S European media talking about this, how dangerous it is, why it's of concern. And all of a sudden last February, uh, everyone stopped talking about it. The only people talking about it were, were Russia and uh, alternative media in the West. So it's, it's pretty obvious as far as the hack goes, that's probably uh, a NATO or NAFO uh, offensive uh, computer cyber warfare. So clearly that's, that's part of the information war, um, 100%. That, there would no, be no other reason for that site to be hacked. Uh, indeed. Okay, thank you for that, Pat. Well, let's uh, bring in this comment as uh, we're getting feedback really now uh, from a number of other sources. Thank you to the UK column viewer that uh, drew my attention to this one. It's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. uh, tweeting out, he's commenting on the war. In fact, no one in the administration or foreign policy establishment is that ignorant. Of course, they know it was provoked. They wanted war as part of their strategic grand plan to destroy any country such as Russia that resists American imperial expansion. They only pretend to think it was unprovoked. They're lying to us, manufacturing consent for war. The administration has dragged us into a proxy war on false pretenses. The blood of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians is on their hands, not to mention over 100 billion US uh, taxpayer dollars. Um, So pretty direct, pretty outspoken, not pulling any punches, of course, but exactly the same uh, trick has been pulled on here in UK. He's obviously talking to an American audience. Exactly the same thing has gone on here in in the UK. Um, Pat, since since Robert F. Kennedy's your side of the pond, I don't know whether you want to comment on that one as well. Well, the first thing I'll say is um, I'm really impressed with uh, how articulate he is on these big major uh, foreign policy issues. So he goes right down to the granular detail. So clearly he's got a grip on these issues. That's something along the lines of what we're used to talking about and analyzing. But he's the only politician literally in the United States, aside from maybe one or two others, uh, who has that level of understanding and expresses it in public, certainly in terms of the presidential candidates. You don't get that sort of sophistication. He's absolutely spot on. Donald Trump, on the other hand, not much on granular details, but Trump nonetheless said in the recent town hall meeting that he would end the war in 24 hours, stop the killing. Slightly different approach, obviously, politically. But the main point Robert F. Kennedy is addressing in that tweet is this talking point in the West, that this was a a war of choice by Russia. And this is a war of aggression uh, by Russia and Vladimir Putin. And then basically there's no other uh, events to talk about, no other context needed. Uh, Forget about the various things that happened uh, before to cause the current phase of this uh, conflict. Forget about the coup in 2014. Forget about NATO's military buildup and sandbagging the Minsk Accords, uh, etc. So forget about all that. It's all about Russia's war of aggression. History began on February 26th, 
2022. That's the way the West want to frame this. This is how the ICC in The Hague is wanting to frame it. This is how the British government want to frame it, and Washington as well. And it really belies, and he, he gives a good point here, if you really understand that, and Medvedev uh, will will address this in, in this in a se- segment coming. But you know, there's two sides to that coin. There's the, there's also the self determination side for the Donbass. So you have Article 51 in the UN Charter, but you also have Article One. That's the flip side of this argument. And any international lawyer will tell you that. And this would be argued in international court in this exact same way, but not in the press and not by our politicians, because they want to gaslight us and narrow the frame of reference so that they can control and and really uh, squeeze and constrain the debate. So they've got you in a sort of pinhole. Uh, and through that pinhole, all you can see is what the government and mainstream media are feeding you in terms of a narrative. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Pat. I'll, I'll have a little bit on the pinhole in a minute. Uh, in respect to the BBC. But meanwhile, uh, the war goes on. I think the meat grinder goes on. But uh, take us into this. And are those F-16s going to be wonder weapons? Well, why why this is important is this a a series of good data points here to show that the, the Western mainstream media is starting to relent on this narrative. Before, you, you wouldn't see these stories coming out, uh, not in any timely fashion, because they would undermine the war effort by NATO. So here's a Wall Street Journal basically calling it a meat grinder and saying that they were throwing uh, unqualified, not properly armed, not trained uh, conscripts into the front line uh, in Donbass, in Donbass, specifically in, in Bakhmut, uh, and so and it's, it was a disaster. They're talking about huge. They don't give you the sort of uh, casualty numbers in this. They haven't gone that far, but obviously we've all covered this in ver- various times throughout the uh, recent recent months. But it, it is really significant because this is a major uh, mainstream media outlet. It's also rip- represents the Republican wing, uh, largely the Republican wing of the U.S political class. So for them to say this, they're admitting that there's a serious problems with the war in Ukraine and with this this NATO proxy war. So I think that's significant. And, and then moving on, uh, even more so, uh, talk of the F-16s has, of course, dominated everybody's conversation. Uh, this is going to be the game changer. Of course, we, we heard the same thing with every single tank delivery. Uh, that preceded it. And before that, it was the Javelin missiles. And before that, it was something else. So here, Mark Milley, who is the chair of the Joint Chiefs, he's basically saying, uh, wait a minute, I wouldn't get your hopes up for a number of reasons. Um, this, this, isn't, this isn't going to be a game changer. And here's why. Let's take a look at what General Mark Milley uh, is actually saying about this. So here we have General Mark Milley talking about the F-16 uh, delivery here. He's saying any F-16 transfer now uh, will be irrelevant for Ukraine. I'm paraphrasing here as a summary, says the Joint Chiefs uh, Mark Milley. So 10 F-16 aircrafts equate to a billion dollars with maintenance costs and, and, and of another billion as well. So basically, that's you're looking at $2 billion for 10 aircraft. $2 billion for 10 aircraft. And what Milley's saying is the Russians have thousands of fourth and fifth generation fighters. So if you're going to compete with Russia in the air, you will need a significant number of fourth and fifth generation fighters. Do we realize what that's going to cost in terms of, you know, our US or British or other NATO member states, you know, to to stock Ukraine with fourth and fifth generation fighters. So it's a drop in the bucket. 
not only that, but there's 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 problems with the delivery time on this. They say they fast tracked the training, but you know, to to think that this is going to be a major game changer is laughable. Not least of all for the fact that they will not be able to keep these planes in Ukraine. They'll have to be parked uh, in Poland, and then they'll be able to fly missions from NATO air, from a NATO country where they're safe. Um, and then it's debatable, you know, how safe they'll be in terms of evading anti-aircraft uh, fire and other potential dogfights, et cetera. So um, I think the, this is a really important admission because this is Millie basically saying it, it's, it's a real bucket of cold water over the politicians who've been crowing about these F-16s now for weeks. So yeah. I, th- I think this is a really significant uh, admission here. Yeah. And perhaps the other thing we should just mention, Pat, is um, from information I've been looking at, it's pretty clear that the US has been training at least some Ukrainian pilots on the F-16 for some time. Uh, The media reports given to most people seem to suggest this is a decision that's just been happening, that's just been made. But the reality is that they've been working on some of these pilots for some time. So more duplicity in how things are reported. But absolutely, what difference are these aircraft going to make? Because the the Russian air defence systems are immensely strong and still intact. Well, here's the BBC. We tried to take the BBC to task a few days ago. I'll show you that. But uh, I picked up on this headline. Uh, Wagner says Bakhmut withdrawal has become. And I think for most people who are probably going to grasp the headline, but won't even be won't, won't be bothered to look at the secondary headline, which says the boss of the mercenary uh, group says it's transferring control of the city to the Russian army. It's the big headline that is going to go straight into people's minds, and the BBC knows it. And the suggestion is that Wagner is withdrawing from Bakhmut. Many people will take that headline uh, to mean that uh, Ukraine still has control over Bakhmut. Uh, BBC, very, very clever in how it puts information across, and they know full well what they're doing. Well, we tried to uh, get some sense out of the BBC. This is 22nd of May. Um, I'll read it it's, uh, so, so that you know exactly what was said. Dear BBC Press Office, detailed reports and analysis from Ukraine over the weekend clearly show by film footage, geolocation and multiple images that Bakhmut has been captured by Russian forces with horrific losses for the Ukrainian troops. In addition, despite m- multiple local and international reports on the fall of Bakhmut, the BBC today, that's the 22nd of, of uh, May, continues to report only Ukrainian claims that Ukraine still holds the city. Your headline today is biased and simply repeats Ukrainian claims while ignoring the facts on the ground. And I echoed back to the BBC their headline, which was Ukraine war, Bakhmut not occupied by Russia, says defiant Zelensky. And I then said, please explain why the BBC is unable to accurately report the fall of Bakhmut to the British public. But this email had a second component uh, because we also asked about the BBC reporting of the Russian defences, which Mike covered in uh, a news a couple of days ago. Um, And... uh, I asked for an explanation as to why the BBC is not reporting the fall of Bakhmut and why the BBC is now demonstrating that it is effectively a military agent of Ukraine. And uh, I look forward to a response. But of course, what was the response from the BBC 
utter silence. Uh, now, one point I'd like to make very nicely for our audience uh, is that we took the trouble to put that email together to challenge the BBC. How much more powerful would it be if the BBC was to receive 100,000 emails asking uh, why they can swallow billions of pounds in UK but can't produce factual news? So, I'm looking to our audience really to say there are many simple things that you can do to hold the BBC to account. It simply requires that uh, well-considered, well-put-together short email. Now, the BBC was uh, very keen to promote a US uh, ambassador, Mr Haas, who was talking about a frozen war. Let's have a look at this little clip. So, Richard, what does that mean for Ukraine's partners? What is the balance that they then need to strike between continuing to arm and help Ukraine and try to uh, make that path for bringing them to the negotiating table? Well, I don't believe its partners can stop arming and economically supporting Ukraine because Russia will continue to arm and rearm. And unless it agrees to a ceasefire, will continue to threaten uh, Ukraine. Uh, I don't think any of that should be taken away. What I think we need to start doing, though, is adding to the strategy and basically saying, if two fighting seasons weren't enough to liberate this territory, why do we think that three or four or five would be enough? And in the meantime, in the, in the process of saving Ukraine, Ukraine is get parts of it are getting pulverized. Millions of people have been made homeless. The economy is a shambles. So the question then is, again, while we continue to help Ukraine, can we introduce a diplomatic dimension here? And I'm not talking about peace. I'm not talking about letting bygones be bygones, but at least perhaps to bring about something of a, a, a ceasefire. I think China might be a potential participant in that, leaning on Russia. The United mm -hmm. States and Europe obviously have a stake in it. And I think under the right terms, the Ukrainian leadership would support it. They would never be asked and should never be asked to give up their goals of liberating all their own territory. To me, the question, though, is whether it's realistic to think their territory can be regained soon through military means rather than an, over time through diplomacy and probably through a change in leadership in Moscow, which might be 5, 10, 15 years off. Well, uh, for me, that was a classic BBC interview because we don't want to talk peace. My goodness, that would be really bad for anybody to talk peace. Uh, no, what we need is a frozen war. And this is really uh, the best that uh, Mr. Haas thinks that uh, Ukraine can achieve. But of course, totally unacceptable to the uh, Russians because they are not going to sit in a backseat position, allowing Ukraine to fill the vacuum. So, uh, Pat, I know you're going to mention uh, this aspect of a frozen war a little more in your segment, uh, but how do you feel about that interview? And I'll just uh, add that, of course, uh, the gentleman concerned was formerly, I think for 20 years, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. So he's not a, not a simple politician. This is a very uh, special um, geopolitical expert with immense power, I think, at the top of the U.S. administration. Yeah, certainly. When you when you hear Richard Haas, uh, you're hearing the uh, the party line of the globalists, especially during a Democratic administration. So he writes for Project Syndicate, as you said, Brian, former head of the CFR. So that that's really the policy position of of Washington. And whatever the policy position of Washington is, that's the real position of NATO, because NATO is Washington and London. Everybody else is is a second tier partner uh, in NATO. So and you notice the the language there. 
you know, we're not talking about peace and uh, we don't want Ukraine to give up its uh, goals of reclaiming all its own territory. But yet we can't do that militarily just yet, maybe through diplomacy and regime change in Moscow. Maybe we can uh, uh, come to a, 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 some sort of a solution. So you can see this is the approach now. Zero diplomacy. Zero diplomacy. They've totally abandoned diplomacy. This is why this war has grinded on now for 15 months, and the death toll, the uh, casualty number on the soldier side on the Ukraine is staggering. You're in the hundreds of thousands potentially of uh, dead Ukrainian soldiers, plus injuries, casualties on the Russian side, maybe not as much, but still significant. And this could end in a day if Washington makes a one phone call to Kiev and said, it's over on Monday. Get ready, you know, to come to the uh, negotiations in Geneva or whatever. We're going to start negotiating ceasefires on Monday. It's over. Ukraine is not going to go it alone. So the U.S. has all the power to 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 set the the pace on diplomacy, and they're choosing to do nothing. And Washington uh, is basically, along with London, are sort of tag teaming this. Both of them. No, zero, zero diplomacy, no envoys from Britain, nobody, no one in NATO is allowed even to broach the subject. And so is, is this the real will of the Ukrainian people? Well, that's, we won't know because elections have been suspended. Zelensky has said martial law will likely uh, carry on through the fall, so no elections. Uh, the press has been shuttered. And other institutions and in the public uh, civil society institutions have been shuttered as well. How, how do how does Richard Haas know what the Ukrainian people want? He uh, knows Pat, what the puppet government wants. Uh, Pat, if I if I can just come back in there uh, a little bit later in the news today, we're going to be having a look at what uh, the BBC's political charity BBC Media Action has been up to in Ukraine. And I think we're going to be giving our viewers and listeners a little snapshot as to uh, what the uh, Ukrainian people are thinking and why they're thinking what they think and who is in control of their thoughts. So I'll just throw that in as a little bit of an advert for the up and coming section. But please carry on, take us into uh, the future of Ukraine, the future of Ukraine. Yeah. Well, this that that frozen conflict conversation, which uh, we've just started here. So this this is what Russia has been saying for a long time. So here's Dmitry Medvedev. Um, he's the current, or maybe even now former, I'm not sure, deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, former president for a short stint uh, back in uh, 2000 and uh, circa 2010, 11, 12. So here he is. He's basically opining here on the future. Of Ukraine, and we need to pay close attention to this because this is what Russia has been saying for a very long time: the Kiev regime must cease to exist, otherwise the conflict may last last for decades. So he he was in a, a conference in Vietnam recently. He he made this uh, made this speech where he articulated these points. He followed it up on his Telegram channel with a bit more detail. This is what he said: this conflict will last. Uh, a long time. So for decades, probably, this is a new reality. It is necessary to destroy the very nature of the Nazi government in Kiev. Otherwise, the conflict would drag on perpetually three years of truce, two years of conflict, rinse and repeat. So basically saying that uh, if this, if the core of the problem in their eyes is not uh, solved and resolved now, then it's just going to be a, a sort of long and tedious uh, eternal conflict here. So, and he goes on, he, f he further intimated the collapse of Ukraine's statehood is inevitable. Uh, 
and could either happen quickly or through relatively slow erosion with the gradual loss of the remaining elements of sovereignty. So if you think about Ukraine now, it's one of the least sovereign countries in the world. Uh, if you have a sovereignty index, it's definitely down at the bottom. So why? They're subsidized by Western governments. We're paying the salaries of their soldiers, uh, civil servant workers, pensions, utilities. Basically, you, the military is wholly subsidized. And we handpicked their government previously and arguably that, that we've done the same here. So that that's not a sovereign state. Ukraine has no agency. Of course, Medvedev is you know, saying the quiet part out loud that nobody wants to talk about that Ukraine is a failed state. I will argue that it, it became a failed state uh, the minute the coup took place in, in Maidan in, in 2014. At that point, an eight-year civil war uh, came after that, a bloody civil war, and, you know, and they're discriminating against uh, minorities or ethnic groups on, based on language. These are all the recipe uh, elements of a failed state. And it's happened in history before. Ukraine is no different, despite uh, what our uh, political leaders and journalists are saying in the West. So let's look at this. Here's the important part. Three scenarios that uh, Dmitry Medvedev is uh, outlining here. First scenario, Western Ukraine will be will come under the control of the neighboring European Union states and eventually be annexed by them. I'll show you a map in a, in a moment. The remaining no man's land, as he's calling it, this is the bit in the middle with Kiev between Western Ukraine and the Dnyepmir River. The remaining no man's land wedged between Russia and the EU NATO protectorate uh, will become the new Ukraine still striving to join NATO and yet still posing a threat to Russia. So scenario one Medvedev is, uh, Russia's not happy with this scenario because they say it's going to sow the seeds for more uh, conflict down the road. That's number one. So here's the map. So this is what he's talking about here. So if we look at the neighboring EU countries, we've got Poland, uh, and we've got, uh, just advance the slide uh, one at a time, please. Uh, Poland, you've got Slovakia as well. Then you've got Hungary, and then you've got Romania. And then that border would probably drop somewhere along there. Okay, so at that point, and then the other border, everything to the east of, of uh, Kiev, those are likely to be held by the Russian Federation. Uh, a large part of that is already under Russian Federation control. And so that bit in the west, that's really going to be a NATO, an EU, we'll call it an EU Anschluss. Uh, just to use a, a, a term there that people are familiar with. So that's what it will be. And so they'll divide uh, Transcarpathia, will go to likely go to Hungary because of the ethnic Hungarians. You have ethnic Slovakians and the, the language culture in some of the uh, areas along the border. Poland, of course, will lay claim to as much as possible as they have been uh, talking about recently, and, and Romania possibly as well. Not likely anything for Moldova, but so it'll be those four EU states. So back to Dmitry Medvedev. Scenario number two, Ukraine gets a government in exile. We've seen this before with Syria and uh, Libya, but the de facto uh, ceases to exist. Control over its entire territory is then split between the EU and Russia. Medvedev says the risk of world war is then moderate, but the terrorist activity by Ukrainian neo-Nazis on the territories annexed by the EU in the West, uh, those neighboring states, that those areas and basically means that Russia uh, and the war is going to drag on uh, likely a counterinsurgency, potentially more than that, 
uh, in the future here. So that's scenario number two. Obviously, this is not ideal for Russia, and maybe NATO might you know, accept this as a, a possible you know, midway point. So scenario number three, uh, Ukraine's Western territories voluntarily join their EU neighbors, while the East and some central regions exercise their right for self-determination, sealed in Article 1 of the UN Charter, which I mentioned before, and then they join the Russian Federation. This is what Crimea has done. This is what Donetsk and Lugansk have done. And so Kherson as well, Zaporozhia, and there are more uh, areas in, in the east of Ukraine that would join that list. So as far as Russia is concerned and Medvedev, this is a good scenario. So according to him, this number three is their best is their best uh, outcome. Now, if you look at the way the map is now and the way this is progressing from a military point of view, Russia is very much on track to achieving this scenario, number three. So it's still going to mean we don't know exactly what's going to happen uh, with with the west of Ukraine. And then you're going to be left with a rump state of, of Ukraine left in the middle and will definitely not be an EU state. It would be a, bu- a buffer zone, a neutral area. So when you talk about a failed state, um, you, you're looking at the makings of a failed state with with Ukraine. It's happened before in history. It's going to happen again. And uh, as as we mentioned before, Brian, I think you alluded to this political article. So this is interesting. Again, more mainstream media talking about a frozen conflict. They weren't talking about this months ago. Ukraine could join the ranks of frozen conflicts, say U.S. officials. The U.S. officials right now in the Beltway, they're talking about a North-South Korea DMZ type situation. And obviously this is acceptable. This might be acceptable for the U S but I am not sure this is going to be acceptable for Europe. Uh, if they can solve this another way, I'm sure that would be ideal. So I'm not uh, convinced that Europeans will take this option. Uh, but yet this is a possibility It's a very strong possibility. So while everybody's kind of backing off a little bit in the U S and rethinking everything, uh, team, uh, l'équipe anglaise, uh, team Britain has uh, sent in their lobbyists to to help uh, drum up interest in the war. Boris doing another rubber chicken tour uh, in the United States to talk up the war and get support going, keep the cash, keep the weapons going, uh, get the Russians. So this is the second the second type of tour like this that Boris has done uh, to sort of put pressure on American individuals, institutions, kind of throwing his weight around there. And of course, they love to host the Brits, Brian and Mike, uh, when they come to visit in America, Boris would be treated like uh, a, a high-ranking statesman while he's in the U.S. Um, maybe not the same in Britain. <laughs> Pat, Pat, sorry, you made me laugh there, but Pat, the key question for me is, in what capacity is, is Boris Johnson there? Is, is he is on he, another of his, sorry, is he on another of his uh, general tours to make sure the violence continues, but nobody knows whether he's acting as an MP or he's on holiday or he's representing his wife? What is he doing there? Uh, maybe he's uh, representing NATO in an unofficial uh, position, playing the role of chief whip unofficially. Uh, I, I do think he's also auditioning for that post. He still wants it. Uh, I'm not sure who who the leading candidates are. Maybe you guys could fill us in on that. But uh, Boris' name was on the on the short list uh, not so long ago. Yeah, this is true. Yes. Okay. So, uh, what about the future of uh, Vladimir Zelensky then? 
Well, that's the question. All this is happening. Bakhmut has fallen. Uh, it's an absolute disaster, uh, really, for Ukraine and NATO. Where is the president? Where is Zelensky? He is on a whistle-stop global tour. You saw him at the Arab League uh, last week. Uh, you've seen him at the G7 in Japan after that. Lots of photo ops, lots of selfies. And then he's off here. So, again, Medvedev is saying that negotiations with Ukraine are possible while the Zelensky regime is in power. So Zelensky's absconded during the critical point in this conflict. And so where is he? Well, just go to the BBC. They'll help us. They're running. Believe it or not, I'm, this is not satire. The BBC time teaser. Zelensky on tour, but where? So you can take a quiz on the BBC's website. To find out where's to guess where Zelensky is and what he's doing, along with other quiz questions about current events. So um, they're always they've always been good on education. The BBC, so we'll <laughs> give them marks there. Um, I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, if they were doing real journalism, they would say, "Why the hell is the is the uh, Ukrainian president not in Kiev at this point?" I mean, it's it's crazy. So again, he's uh, what here doing college graduation ceremonies. Zelensky receives a standing ovation after a speech to John Hopkins University graduates in Washington, D.C., obviously coming in on the big uh, video wall there. So, yeah, there he is. He's uh, available for uh, birthday parties, uh, bar mitzvahs, stag nights. I mean, this guy's unbelievable. He's doing everything but what he should be doing. Yeah, I wonder whether he's spending... Time, so much time out, out of the country because he's beginning to sense that his position is becoming ever more uh, precarious and I suspect genuinely dangerous. But uh, we'll see whether he goes back to support his uh, fellow countrymen. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to join us there and your membership very much needed. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Uh, well, I'm just going to say a big thank you to another of our viewers who said, would we like this one? And I liked it a lot. It's a tweet from the Cabinet Office about a new team which is going to be surging into departments of the civil service to help prevent fraud in public spaces. And this is quite some team. We'll, we'll obviously be reporting on this in greater detail. But meanwhile, billions of UK taxpayers' money is given to the openly corrupt state of Ukraine. So I wonder whether this team, they all look fairly well fed and comfortable in this picture, whether they will be going off to Ukraine to actually see where our money's gone. I suspect not, Mike, but we'll see. And uh, we just wanted to give a mention here uh, to a lot of concern about Mike and uh, Masha, um, who are missing, it appears, somewhere near Bakhmut. Now, this is uh, uh, Mike from the uh, I Earl Grey YouTube channel, and he usually has a lady with Masha who's the uh, translator. Uh, and very good and capable she is, but apparently they've been out of touch for 24 hours, Mike. At is least that, I think, yes. 
Okay, so we'll see how that progresses, but we certainly hope that they're both safe and well. And uh, just wanted to bring this one on screen uh, briefly. Yes, the text is small, I know, I'll be told off for that. But uh, uh, this one from uh, uh, Eddie says, this morning I switched on my internet radio, Lifestyle 74, which is based in Switzerland, broadcast to France and Switzerland. And to my surprise and delight, one of the first words that I heard was uh, UK column. But then I recognised the voice, Mark Anderson, talking about Bilderberg. So we just want to say a very big thank you uh, to Eddie and uh, thank you for letting us know that uh, we are beaming into Switzerland now. And of course, we know that we've had quite a big audience in France for some time. So thank you to everybody from those two countries if you're with us today. Uh, I just wanted to uh, very briefly uh, update you on uh, Professor Sukrit Bhakti. We were talking about this on Monday's programme, obviously. And then uh, subsequent to that, there was some uh, discussion in various media outlets about whether the German prosecutors were going to attempt to appeal uh, the, his acquittal uh, from Monday. Now, my understanding at this point in time is that that situation is still completely unclear. Uh, the German prosecutor was clearly very disappointed with the outcome of the verdict. Uh, but uh, whether she feels that uh, there is actually an opportunity uh, to, to reverse that or not, or whether she just did uh, a bad enough job that, that, it's, that it's irretrievable from her point of view, uh, remains to be seen. So there are some people suggesting that, that it's a done deal, that there will be an appeal on behalf of the prosecution. But as far as we are aware, that is not quite uh, there yet. So we'll keep you posted anyway. Um, okay, let's come on to the issue of uh, digital ID. Uh, and of course, we've been talking about this for quite a long time because uh, the British government's been running consultations and so on on the issue. Um, they have uh, today published uh, frequently asked frequently asked questions sheet about uh, this as a result of the consultation. So I just wanted to run through a couple of these and uh, and give some views on it. Um, so here is the first claim that they make in their FAQ. The government makes the claim that, or at least the claim that the government is saying that the claim on the internet is that the government is creating a mandatory ID card. Uh, and they say that the fact is uh, that the proposed legislation does not include any proposal to create either a digital or physical ID card. The government is committed to making it as easy as possible for people to prove who they are online and to access the services they need without creating mandatory ID cards. Well, I'm going to say straight away that that is utterly misleading uh, because if we look, just take one example here, which is the online safety bill. Uh, what they are doing uh, as part of that legislation is to push the responsibility for making these things mandatory onto the corporations that we are doing business with. So in other words, it is effectively mandatory by the fact that you won't be able to access sites unless you have digital ID in order to verify your age. For example, so you know that it's it may be technically correct to say that it's not mandatory in the letter of the legislation, but the spirit of the legislation makes it mandatory nonetheless. Let's look at the next uh, claim that they make, or the claim that they want to refute here is so the claim that they want to refute is that using gov.uk one login will be mandatory. Now we've been talking about that over the, the last number of weeks. This is the uh, new. Uh, mechanism for logging into the government website. Uh, and they say that no, having a gov.uk one login account will not be mandatory for UK citizens. Offline and face-to-face -face routes will still be available for individuals who do not want to use the online service. 
And again, I'm going to say very strongly that this is utterly misleading because, of course, what people already experience trying to access government services through the uh, offline routes is chaos. Uh, and HMRC being one example of it, where uh, online services uh, have been taking, or sorry, offline services takes, in other words, the phone. It takes some people so long to get through to somebody on the phone uh, that it just becomes a massively frustrating situation. So HMRC, this is uh, back in January, uh, accounting web reporting that HMRC saying, well, use the online services and then wait times are going to fall and you don't have any problem. So effectively, therefore, uh, digital ID or sorry, the one login service is going to be a requirement because that's the only way you're actually going to get through to anybody in any timely way. But aside from that, they don't say what the future holds because I'm quite certain if we take uh, the what their plans are with digital ID in the context of the other legislation that they're planning, we can see a, a, a journey uh, that people are going on in a few years' time. It's going to be a very much a different situation as they shut down more and more phone lines and so on. I just wanted to add in there, Mike, that I spoke to HMRC uh, via phone um, probably about a month ago now, and the wait, I can tell you, was 49 minutes. Yes. And uh, the music, not particularly enjoyable. Um, so let's look at the next uh, claim that they want to refute. Uh, it, this will make it easier for hackers to get hold of my data, is the claim that they want to refute. And the fact, they say, is that cybersecurity is a critical priority for the government. We recognize how important it is to protect users and their data and have robust measures in place to ensure the security uh, and integrity of online government services and systems. And again, I'm going to say this is utterly misleading at the very least, uh, because of course, uh, there have been new stories over the years uh, of government data breaches. Uh, happens fairly regularly. This is from November last year. UK government data breach for millions of children ruled unlawful. Uh, the privacy watchdog finds education department give improper access to identifying information. Uh, this is, uh, so I'm going to say, at, at the least, uh, inaccurate claim by the government. So here's the next uh, claim that they are trying to refute, that sharing data in this way will erode my privacy rights. The fact, they say, is that the government has stringent data protection processes in place. Uh, all data sharing is compliant with data protection legislation and guidance published by the Information Commissioner's Office. This will remain the case for any and all data sharing subsequent to the proposed legislation. We're going to say, at the least, this is, again, misleading. So let's just remind ourselves about the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, and just remind ourselves of the scope of this. This is a bill to make provision for the regulation of the processing of information relating to identifying identified or identifiable living individuals, to make provision about services consisting of the use of information to ascertain and verify facts about individuals, to make provision about access to customer data and business data, to make provision about privacy and electronic communications, to make provision about services for the provision of electronic signatures, electronic seals, and other trust services, to make provision about the disclosure of information to improve public service delivery, to make provision for the implementation of agreements on sharing information for law enforcement purposes, to make provision about keeping and maintenance of registers of births and deaths, to make provision about information standards for health and social care, to establish the Information Commission to make provision about oversight of biometric data and for connected purposes. So although uh, obviously identity is part and parcel of, of those words, it goes much broader than that. 
um, and in fact does quite a lot to dismantle the current data protection regime. Um, so, uh, Patrick, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but um, they, they have clearly felt, uh, or at least the response to the consultation, they felt they needed to respond to that in turn, but their responses, I'm going to say, are pathetic at the very least. Sure. Yeah. If you look at local government, just just the count local council, they they basically stopped doing in person offline uh, services before COVID. So, and actually before COVID, a, a year before COVID, I think, or months before. Funny how that coincidence. But anyway, so that you you can't go and see them and do any business with the council. The only one that has in person services would be like DSS or a job center. Uh, type services with unemployed and so forth. So uh, what you're seeing is the full digitization of society and and to 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 the point where this is what the 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 government's ultimate uh, goal is and what technocrats and these sort of big data bureaucrats want is everything digitized, managed by AI, very few humans involved, if any, uh, and then we're completely immersed in this uh, full digital system. Um, and by the way, just so people know, um, they've already test run this on the military. They already have this system. So they have the all-in-one app, okay? It's got everything on there, work, life, medical, everything. So th th it's already, it's been running with the military for years. So, and they've been perfecting it and adding to it. And now uh, we will have basically the same thing for the public. This, this is the idea. Yes. Okay, thank you. For that, uh, well, let's come back to our old friend, the BBC. Now, many of our long-standing viewers and listeners will know that UK Column has been on the trail of the BBC's charity, BBC Media Action, for a very long time. And uh, we've been particularly interested in their relationship with all matters to do with Ukraine. And uh, I've discovered this little, very interesting little uh, film um, clip which the BBC had put out on the 2nd of March 2023 and um, I thought it would be valuable to actually have a look through some of it uh, because we get a better insight as to what BBC Media Action has uh, been up to in Ukraine. But if you're not aware of what BBC Media Action is, it is a charity. It says we believe in the power of media and communication for good. So trust us, our vision, a world where informed and empowered people live in healthy, resilient and inclusive communities. Our mission is that with our, with our partners, we reach millions through creative communication and trusted media, helping people have their say, understand their rights, responsibilities in each other and take action to transform their own lives. So uh, <laughs> I can see the smile. Well, well, we should just note that with our partners, and of course, we shouldn't forget that one of their major partners and funders is the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Sorry. Oh, that, no, that's fine, of course. And uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and the US Department of Defense and a few other people. But uh, let's start off with the first little video clip and have a look at uh, what is a very short little introduction to BBC Media Action's work. In terms of where we work, of course, you know, supporting independent media to generate high quality public interest content is central to the work uh, that we do and uh, what we focus on. And that's what we'll focus on today. We work across 23 countries uh, where we conduct audience research, you know, capacity strengthening uh, of local and national media. 
develop creative information, uh, informative and engaging media uh, content. We rely on the support of our generous uh, donors, you know, including governments, uh, foundations, uh, and corporations and individuals. And you'll see in the slides there that the projects that we're talking about today um, were basically made possible by these donors, you know, the UK, Swedish, Canadian governments, and UNICEF. So um, very quickly, of course, what you, what you said just now, Mike, is uh, proven that uh, they're very much in bed with uh, governments. I think I said the US Department of Defense. I didn't. I meant the State Department. I think is the uh, uh, has been one of the major players in in uh, in the US. Uh, but clearly, UK governments involved other governments. But don't worry, it is a charity. Um, so if we have a look, one of the terms that uh, they like to promote is public interest media. Here's the quote. Public interest media is defined as media that's free and independent, that exists to inform publics on the issues that shape their lives in ways which serve the publics rather than any political, commercial or factional interest to enable public de debate and dialogue across society and to hold those in power to account on behalf of the public interest. It implies a focus on ethical and credible media working in the interests of all people across all of society, not just those who have the power or money to pay for or influence media. Public interest media can, can be commercial, public service or community media and distributed online broadcast through print or other channels. Um, so all wonderful things. It's definitely jammed tomorrow. But I just noticed this uh, funny little source, IFPIM. I had no idea what that was, but I'll come on to that in a minute. Let's just have a little look at how this uh, video clip went on to introduce the relationship between BBC Media Action and the Ukraine uh, broadcaster, Sir Spilney. And now let's turn to the region I know very well, Eastern Europe. Between 2019 and 2022, BBC Media Action provided support to independent media in Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova under its uh, Eastern Partnership Independent Media Project. One of our well-known media partners in Ukraine uh, is Ukrainian public service broadcaster Suspilne. It has been five years since the reform of Suspilne, as it's changed from governmental media outlet to public one. And as Ukrainian, I'm really happy about this. BBC Media Action has had a close and long-standing partnership with Suspilne. Most recently, we worked together to rebrand and relaunch Suspilne as a modern multi-platform broadcaster. And I think that the result is really impressive. Um, but talking about current situation, since the 24th of February last year, life and work of every one of us, of every Ukrainian has uh, changed completely. So um, there we are. Obviously, that's only a sort of snapshot introduction. But uh, the key bit there that this uh, media organization in Ukraine has been taken from a government organization into a public organization. And because the BBC has been one of the key, uh, BBC Media Action has been one of the key organizations in control of that process, it can now be trusted and everything is wonderful in the state of Ukraine. Um, Patrick, I'm, I'm going to move on through this, but I don't know whether you'd like to, are you getting a feel for what's, uh, what's happening here? 
Yeah, I, I love this statement in the first uh, slide there, where it said, uh, we, you know, we want to give access to everybody, not just people with the power and the money to influence media. Who's got more power and money than the uh, U.S. State Department, the British Foreign Office, and the British Broadcasting Corporation? I mean, the hypocrisy is baked right into their own statements. So, and the other thing, they want to counter mis and disinformation. Those are two invented words that were just uh, conjured out of nowhere in the last couple of years, uh, which are, you know, uh, censorship-based, a euphemism for censorship, and also elections. You see the focus on elections, evoking the January 6th or election denial talking point. So this is an absolute tool, a, a, a weapon. These types of NGOs, this types of work is absolute weapon to control and steer political activity and affairs in foreign countries. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll follow the sequence through in, in, in uh, BBC Media Action's video clip. I, I've pulled out some images just to help speed the process up because it's leading into a gentleman from Suspilny, the Ukrainian media outlet, speaking himself. And we will hear a little bit about what he's got to say. But uh, this slide is setting out what they've, what, um, uh, Suspilny has been doing with BBC Media Action, and he's talking about the success of research. So four waves of express polls regarding in-demand topics, field work over 24, 27 hours, research samples of thousand uh, responders. This is major, major effort going on. Uh, and, and the target is what? Well, we get a clue from this slide, a highlight, so that it's easy for people to see. But here is the BBC up to its favourite trick. It's, it's interested in behaviour the behavior of people, what's the impact of the war on the families, uh, how is it changing their behavior, why does the BBC want to know this? Because when it understands this, the BBC will be able to influence and change people's behaviour in Ukraine. And to use the British government's boast, people in Ukraine won't even realise that their behaviour has been changed. Or if they do, they won't know how it was done. Well, we are showing you how it was done. Uh, he went on to talk about the impact of social media course, very powerful in spreading the message across people's phones. And in a time of war, people are going to be clinging to all possible sources of communication. So they really understand the elevated power of social media. And uh, this was a bit of a summary. It said that there have been four waves, 20 questions, 19 publications, 25 TV screenings and 25 reports. This is all drilling into the minds and behaviors of people in Ukraine. You understand the mind, you understand the behavior, you can control that behavior. And of course, many people in Ukraine simply will not understand that the BBC in Britain works alongside the security services. So let's look at the little video clip with the gentleman from Ukrainian Suspilny TV uh, talking. Listen very carefully to what he says. On the next slide, we can also uh, highlight the issue of these donations and switching to Ukrainian language and, uh, well, fighting on the front line by the, by the end of the day that showed the level of national unity that was very important for communities to understand and to feel about so that, again, we have more... Uh, and be be more inspiring in the, these dark times, uh, especially in the beginning of the winter when 
it's it's getting cold and dark and people often get uh, depressed about what's going on with them so basically i think the uh, whole thing is about that uh, oh it, it ends up on the next slide with the uh, idea that it it was not just about some propaganda or ideological issues it was a correct uh, mass uh, surveys that covered the uh, social, the, the public opinion, and it gave also practical life hacks from people to people to get, let them better understand how to uh, manage their winter plans. So, um, did you, as a uh, viewer, listener, pick up on that? What he said very early on was that people were moving away. Uh, to Ukrainian. And what is he really talking about? He's talking about the fact that many people very happy living in Ukraine, but they actually spoke Russian. And obviously what has been going on here is a program hitting people's minds to get them away from speaking Russian because that doesn't fit the British government's narrative or the US government's narrative in Ukraine. And uh, pushing people, behavior modification, to get them across to speak Ukrainian. But later on, he's talking about propaganda quite happily. Now, I know that the inference is that the only people playing with propaganda are the Russians, but the reality is that a much more pernicious form of propaganda is now being driven into Ukraine um, by the Western powers. And to my mind, my personal opinion, be BBC media action is part of it. But um, this is taking control of the population in Ukraine. Patrick, I'll just give you a, a couple of seconds if you want to respond on that. Yeah, the main the main focus of the propaganda is, is he said it is national unity during this war. But the longer they try to enforce this quote national unity with propaganda, they're actually uh, accelerating the breakup of Ukraine. That's the irony of all of this. Had, had it had the conversation been a real political conversation about uh, diplomacy and finding a solution to the whether this the problem with their neighbor Russia and Europe. And then coming to a negotiation table within the first weeks of the conflict, Ukraine would be intact, largely. That won't be the case in six or 12 months. And so the BBC is helping that process of the breakup of Ukraine based on everything that we've spoken of uh, and shown every our, our viewers earlier in this program. That's where this is headed. And yeah. the BBC is actually helping that process, Brian. Yeah. Well, I completely agree on that. Thank you, uh, Patrick. Right, just to finish this little segment, we'll come back to the slide which I showed earlier, uh, which is the um, BBC Media Action giving the definition of public interest media. And uh, I highlighted the source of the quote, IFPIM. I had no idea what that was. Well, here it is, the International Fund for Public Interest Media. And uh, more work to be done, but if you delve into it, uh, I believe the French government is heavily involved. Uh, Macron himself was mentioned at one point. Uh, but we've got massive money coming forward in order to provide media which is independent of government and big money. Uh, you couldn't make this up, but here it is, our work. An international fund for public interest media supports both individual media organizations as well as experiments and innovations at the media ecosystem level with the goal of ensuring that public interest media have the tools and resources needed to survive and avoid capture in the short term 
and thrive in the long term. But it's not about avoiding capture. These organizations are being created by the government money in the first place. Um, here we are. Uh, so it says its mission is to foster a paradigm shift in how public interest media is resourced with the goal of ensuring it is independent, inclusive and resilient. Uh, its vision is that people worldwide live in healthy info info information ecosystems with access to media that upholds the public interest. This is all words, but the reality is very different because this is building controlled media right down to the local community level. And uh, what comes after that? Well, this is what will be coming in Ukraine at some stage. But here is UK uh, citizens and uh, what is their mission to develop local leaders uh, through the method of community organizing? So you gain control of the media. The next thing that you want on the ground is the leaders. I would have called them a few years ago, the common purpose future leaders, but these are the people that will ultimately be appearing in Ukraine, I guarantee it, in order to take full control down to the community level. We will see. Uh, now, we just want to finish with one more little segment here. Uh, as everybody will know by now, a few days ago, the uh, new National Conservative Conservatism Organization uh, held their conference. Uh, and one of the uh, keynote speakers at that was uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, the uh, former head of uh, MI6. So just just wanted to highlight a couple of the points that he made during his uh, keynote speech. Uh, so we'll start off just get a flavor of what the speech was about. I don't usually reference my own career, but in the context of putting active measures into a contemporary perspective, it is relevant. I retired from the Secret Intelligence Service after 38 years of Crown service and have enjoyed a further 19 as a speaking head, a privilege allowed to former chiefs, thus for 57 years, Russia and China have been at the center of my professional concerns. So that sets the scene. Russia and China are his main concerns. Uh, now, of course, he didn't say anything there when he was talking about his uh, past career about yellow cake or Iraq uh, or any of that stuff. But anyway, uh, he then went on to talk about regime change. The reality today is that we remain confronted by two autocratic polities still focused on the eventual destruction of our value system. The sheer brutality of Putin's regime leads me towards the conclusion that Russia's political DNA is so corrupted that only another revolutionary change might rebalance it. So he's hoping for revolutionary change. I, I'm sorry, I've got to say the arrogance of this man is breathtaking, the arrogance. We sit here in a country riddled with corruption. We've talked about money disappearing over to Ukraine. We've got children stolen. We've got elderly people killed off in nursing homes and hospitals. And this man dares to go on a platform to lecture the Russians. I find it obscene, Mike, absolutely right. obscene. Right, well, I'm keen to get Patrick's thoughts on this, but before we do, I've got one, a little clip specially for Patrick, so let's just listen to this one. Russian attempts to gerrymander aspects 
of the last US presidential election are still being investigated. Active measures work best in a fertile social and political environment where naivety about Russian and Chinese intentions is rife, where doubt about our own value system and its foundations has irrational strength. So, Patrick, that's three little clips so far, and each one of them I've seen you groaning on the other side of the camera there. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts? He still bangs the Russiagate drum, uh, and in the meantime, accuses anybody of having a differing opinion of being naive. Yeah, I don't think he got the memo about Russiagate in the 2016 election. It was a hoax. This is like, maybe he didn't get the memo. Maybe we, uh, I don't know what happened there. Um, so, he's, so he's talking about banging on about active measures. This is Soviet Cold War talk. That's a term lifted from the Cold War. This, is, this gives you an indication of where these people's minds are. They're still residing in, 19, in the 1980s, and they haven't left. Yet they've been promoted through the system, and they continue to operate and talk as if uh, it's Red Dawn. Okay, so re uh, really crazy. Um, uh, <laughs> the other one is po the political DNA of Russia is corrupted, and hence uh, beyond reform. Is this like political eugenics now? It's you know what are we getting into? Social Darwinism. So so to to there, it's the trope that. The China and Russia, the brutal authoritarians, um, they're taking advantage of our freedoms in our free and open society that's so free and open these days with no censorship or uh, deplatforming or spying or mass surveillance on their own uh, citizens. We don't do that in the West, of course, uh, but uh, Russia's taking advantage of that. China's taking advantage of that to, to undermine our freedom somehow. So the solution, the solution is to is to uh, is is to limit our civil liberties and limit our privacy for our own good to 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 preserve our freedoms. You see, it it doesn't make perfect sense, guys. It does absolutely, absolutely. It gets better because he then goes on to criticize anybody that uh, may have uh, a more positive view of Russia and China. Let's listen to this. I'm worried when I witness eminent members of our own elite doing the work of our almost enemies for them. Whether it is advocating for Huawei, refusing to publish any scientific, serious scientific study that questions the Chinese narrative on the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. or promoting a settlement in the war between Russia and Ukraine that ignores the peace conditions laid down by President Zelensky. So there we go, lab leak as well. That, he had to get that one in. Yeah, the clapping was particularly pathetic, I thought. Um, for me, it wasn't people. I could imagine the sea lion there banging its flippers together. Yes, in and appreciation. Uh, yes, and finally, finally, uh, war is good. I've just returned from a visit to Ukraine where I was generously given high-level access across the government. It was a humbling experience. 
war for all the violence and tragedy that it unleashes also triggers great creativity and catalyzes motivations. Ukraine is fighting for its survival and for Europe's future security. Unavoidably, it is our war as well. Well, more war, clear. We need more war. We need more war, Patrick. See, they jumped a gun on the applause there. Did you see that? They went and then had, had to pull back because he wasn't done, well, done that, that talking. Well, that was a little bit of edit. So, so yeah, but don't worry. So, 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 yeah, so, you know, war is good. War is good. It, it, it'll uh, sharpen us up uh, in Western Europe. So it, it, everything that they're saying that Russia is wanting to do, they're absolutely provoking Russia to do by dragging this on, by arming Ukraine, by escalating constantly, which Britain is a big part of that escalation. Um, they're actually, through these activities from Washington, London, that that's where they're emanating from. Let's be honest. It's not Central Europe. Um, they're, Poland may be to some degree as well now, but they're being prodded into it. But that's creating a threat to Western Europe. Uh, Western Europe. And by the way, on the, on, the, on the Russian meddling in the election, one of the reasons why that hoax was allowed to uh, go go viral was because of a thing called the Steele dossier. And if I recall correctly, I might be wrong, but wasn't Christopher Steele employed by Orbis Business Intelligence? Um, maybe did did the boss read the the dossier and proofread it? Maybe to see that it wasn't a complete, totally fake. And before it went viral in the U.S. media and went to every politician and department in the U.S. government and the FBI. Uh, I think he knows a thing or two about that. Well, he should. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my last point would be, we see dear love traveling. On whose behalf was he traveling? Presumably his own ego. Um, was he there for the British government? Was he there for the security services? Or was he there, you know, in order to be a, a celebrity, a has-been celebrity? I think there's some questions that he needs to answer. We need to leave it there. Well, we probably should. <laughs> okay, Patrick, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been really good. Uh, we'll say to our audience, wherever you are in the world, thank you for jo joining UK Column and to everybody who's supporting us. And we'll say very nicely, if you're a long-term watcher of UK Column News and you're not yet signed up as a supporter with us, please join us uh, because we've got uh, plans for further expansion and we can only do that with your financial support. So have a think about uh, making that membership subscription to UK Column. We'll leave it there. Have a good weekend. Um, we'll extra time, we will minutes, be back in a couple of minutes for extra time for UK Column members. So we'll see you there. Bye-bye.